Hi, Carolina. Welcome to Network Capital. In this podcast, we try and demystify mental models and understand why people do what they do. Uh, could you get us started by telling us who you are and uh, what's your occupation? Sure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. Um, I am employed at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute in Stockholm, uh, where I am working in the climate change and risk team. And uh, I am from Sweden, uh, although this institute is uh, international. So the topics that we handle uh, mainly range from um, weapons industry, production, manufacturing and uh, uh, nuclear Um Though in the past three, four years, there's also been this program on more contemporary uh, peace and security related issues. And that's how climate has been brought into uh, the Institute. And that's what I do. Uh, and that's what uh, gets me uh, a salary between nine to five. And otherwise, I am uh, part of the Global Shapers community, uh, which is uh, a global community for the young, younger generation that involves in uh, volunteer uh, projects locally across 400 cities and hubs around the world. Uh, and there I am part of the curating team in the Stockholm hub. That's wonderful. And if I'm given to understand, you just got back from Davos. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about uh, what were your top three takeaways from the experience? Yes, uh, indeed. So I was uh, invited to divorce because of my engagement in the Global Shapers community where uh, the World Economic Forum is sending uh, 50 out of the 10,000 uh, shapers to the World Economic Forum annual meeting uh, yearly. And um, so the delegation of 50 shapers uh, were uh, included uh, fellow um shapers from all kinds of corners of the world, from from Bangladesh to uh, Kenya to Venezuela and uh, also Sweden. Um, so um, we were there to have a seat at the table, to be able to uh, sit on the front row and ask questions and be uh, a, a group that can actually stand for values instead of standing for uh, other sort of corporate interests, for example. Uh, so we represent ourselves and our community. Um, and so takeaways were many, and it's been really hard to sort of summarize what um, what what was the the biggest uh, surprise or... or well, let's start uh, with the learning. You had written about... Uh uh, climate change as a subject close to your heart. Maybe you could talk to us about that. Mm. Yeah. So, what what makes it to the to the headlines with Davos is I I see as quite bombastic and and quite um, contrasting to what you actually experience when you are there. Um, I mean, what you what we saw from Davos this year was essentially Trump, of course, and also Thunberg, so Greta Thunberg and Trump on, on each side of the spectra. But in between there, you have the actual attendees of the forum, which I get the impression that many people are there with 
with more genuine agendas than what I had expected, and that includes uh, ambitions within climate. Um, and so, of course, I I was um, part of this um, this cluster within the Shapers that came to Davos with the eyes and ears open to really hear what's going on on the climate side and the new manifesto that was uh, released by the forum, which is uh, an update of an old uh, manifest called uh, Revolving Around Stakeholder Capitalism. So the inclusion of uh, um, sort of society and uh, the respect for for human rights and environment into the uh, corporate sphere. And I found that that was... That, they, that really was a zeitgeist and so was climate. Um, and we just have different ways of approaching it. And of course, we see it in different, with different lenses. Um, and we were also fortunate enough to engage with the Fridays for Future that were there. And we had an exclusive conversation with them about climate. And I thought it was almost painful to see that it's, it's, there's really a gap between how the, young climate activists and school strikers are striving for uh, systems change uh, with a, and they have very good insight into what needs to uh, what the science is is promoting that should be done and what is about to happen if we don't uh, at the same time there's the current decision makers and leaders that just they're not as updated and not as sophisticated uh, often in terms of what uh, what the latest knowledge is and um, yeah there's a there's a rather painful gap in the conversations that we also saw and I think that that's that's a conversation that um, that that is important to have about the gap between what the school strikers and other climate activists foresee and what the leaders think that uh, can or should be done. And often we talk about educating the young when, in fact, I think it's about educating those um, in power now and parliamentarians, politicians to, to lessen the gap uh, because we don't have time to wait for these generations to take leading positions uh at least those kinds of positions that we see of influence in Davos, although, of course, this community is extremely influential um, compared to the means that they have. So this kind of contrast or conflict between young and uh, older generations was clearer than I thought that it would be. Um, and also um, the, the approach that the business community has, I think they are, they are, trying but it's just not what um is expected from um a more radical point of view which seems to be uh, the sort of ambition that we need if we are going to considering how little time we have to adjust uh, to resilience in in this question um but overall it was a positive experience um and uh a lot of insights that were um, that I'm optimistic about. There seems to be some kind of momentum. Yeah, I was in Davos uh, as a shaper um, a couple of years back, and I um, even I thought that it's an amazing platform to bring uh, different stakeholders from the public sector, private sector together. 
and really mm. initiate some uh, difficult conversations, some tough dialogues. Um, but obviously, you understand climate change and uh, uh, other forces much deeper because uh, it's your it's part of your job. It's part of your curiosity at a day to day level. Uh, tell mm. me about uh, some of the most uh, interesting sessions or discussions that you had at Davos. And uh, if they changed your mind about something, we'd love to know. Mm. Um, sure, there were many and I guess that I'm the sort of person that brings it up um, often <laughs> so then you end up having a lot of conversations on this um, but uh, I was part of a, a panel on uh, called responding to a global water crisis and what I mentioned was that um, water is one of the first elements or parts of our daily lives in which we will actually feel and already feel uh, man-made climate change and as well as uh, man-made environmental change of course and that is uh, that means that that's an opportunity to to boost resilience uh, to climate change through water action um, and that conversation was almost exclusively with uh, corporates and business um, actors, so Ecolab, Coca-Cola, um, Suez, and uh, also a uh, actually an, a previous uh, Indian minister, and as well a Chinese um, director for an environmental institute. And that conversation was, I mean, since there's so much, that was really a reflection of the power of um the, the capital that is in Davos. I mean, I've heard that it's a fourth of global GDP that ends up on that mountaintop for uh, a week. So that was <clears throat> quite um, obvious during that session where once it was over, um, the ideas that we had crafted during the session and brainstormed, uh, one idea that surfaced was a price uh, a blue price for youth uh, community engagement or community innovation or even water innovation. And so that came up and, uh, and I suggested that the World Economic Forum could could uh, boost such a such an initiative. And we only closed the panels and thanked each other. And then there was uh, an actor that came up and said that, that they could fund this. Uh, and for me, that was such a powerful such a powerful insight that if we if we do jump on this this momentum and this these insights and we identify in which in which concrete ways that we can approach climate change and and uh, nurture resilience then we can actually we can actually you know we can do something and that was so encouraging that is indeed. Um, and tell me about uh, your experience about the entire subject. Like, uh, how did you get mm. interested in climate change um, and natural sciences altogether? What is something that you picked up in college? What were mm. some early influences in your life? The reason I ask you this question is that uh, essentially our community is focused on understanding why people do what they do. 
Um, and you've built a career to solve a problem that you're particularly interested in solving. So our, our listeners are very interested in understanding what, what was the beginning point and uh, how did you follow your curiosity? Yeah. Um, yeah, indeed, Utkash, it's true. Um, I also identify as, as curious, as, as you have mentioned, and that led me to, to travel and backpack and meet people from all walks of life in in many different places and what is ever ever present is the our relationship to the natural world and our dependence on the natural world uh, we all breathe the same oxygen drink the same water enjoy the same sun um, and it's also so it's a it's um you know it it's what sustains life but it's also one of our grandest problems uh, the way that we approach our natural world and it's it can be done best if it's done collectively on a global scale so this was a really natural um, sort of um, cross-pollination between my interest in the world as a whole and in and in the ways that we are connected in this world which is which is um through our common home, which is our planet. And I had a bit of a hard time um, engaging in Sweden on these questions because the most the most obvious way to engage as a rather young person uh, is through civil society organization or political organization. And the environmental communities in particular are usually about saying no it's to say say no to doing this stop doing that stop with the plastic stop with the nuclear stop with the pollution and so on and that's it's hard to drive that kind of uh, movement and to be encouraged by it Um, and so it took a while to sort of settle in this question although it was always um, something that occupied uh, and worried me, um, but I was it was through a row of mistakes that I ended up in this um, employment that I'm in today, which is essentially about analyzing how the UN, uh, the African Union, the European Union, the, the multilateral institutions in in general are adapting their language, uh, mainly their security. Uh, language to to climate change and how um, how to adapt that and and that was by a mistake that I ended up there because um, I did an internship with the permanent mission of Sweden to the UN in New York during our uh, membership in the Security Council and there Sweden was uh, doing footwork around uh, climate uh, change as an issue to be tabled in the council and sort of interrogating whether it would make sense to have it uh, on the council. Uh, so be treated as a um, peace and security question. And not only doing that, there was a lot of thinking around how can the UN uh, incorporate uh, environment and climate into their peace uh, missions and, and operations in a way that makes sense and that is actually 
building resilience and and uh, being conflict sensitive at the same time and all of a sudden there was this whole new world that opened for me with how one could engage through diplomacy and through politics and through sort of uh, behind the curtains in a way that would actually make and adjust a whole old institution to something so contemporary and new um so that was um that was something that was um yeah that that was so interesting that i thought that i wanted to dwell deeper into it and so i wrote a thesis about um climate resettlement in colombia uh, so i went there to to interview people that had been resettled and later on it also brought me to um the position i'm in today which is uh, at the institute that was giving uh, advice and did research for the swedes during this time so it is very um intimately linked um to the the position i was in as an intern and what i learned there and what i do now so <clears throat> yeah that's how you make how, it sound very easy but it's a lot more <laughs> than serendipity um it's Uh, you know luck is where hard work make make meets preparation and of course we there are times when we hack luck and you clearly made uh, luck and serendipity work for you but i understand that yes sometimes uh, chance also plays a huge role but only if we are well prepared um mentors play an important role um are mm-hmm. there some in your life who've played a pivotal role in nudging you towards the right direction or pointing you um through a dilemma you know i've actually i actually haven't had any um professional mentors though i'm realizing now that it is such an amazing concept and it it, it cannot be um yeah it cannot be emphasized enough what a difference it can make because you don't see the whole horizon when you're just in the beginning of of any career or in the beginning of the end of studies or uh similar positions and it's um yeah the the insight and wisdom that that people that have been around whether it's in your potential industry or another one um can be incredible uh, i think the only person that uh i come to think of now is really uh my granddad who was great at at narrating his life and his choices and that gave me inspiration to see my life as a very uh, long story that had only begun um so that would be my answer to that and absolutely uh, our grandparents uh, you know essentially trying to trace the roots sometimes can be a very interesting journey and so can travel so can mm. books um have are there some travels or some books or some adventures that have uh, helped shape your career so far mm. um all of them <laughs> um yes i um spent again i spent some significant time on on really just exploring and figuring out what to do and i did that for two years between 18 and 20 and then at 20 i kind of realized i needed some intellectual stimulation uh, asap so i um went back to think what i had been wanting to do uh previously and i had set up 
a decision or a promise to myself that if I don't know what to do with my life, I'll just go for something that's going to take a long time to learn and that will occupy me for years. And that will be Chinese, Russian or Arabic language. So I went for Chinese uh, and I ended up in China, in Tianjin. So um, uh, a city that um, not that many are familiar with, except perhaps if you are associated to the World Economic Forum. Uh, but it's a city of 12 million uh, in uh, close to Beijing. And I ended up there at a university to study Chinese. And I didn't know much about China and I didn't know uh, anyone there either. There wasn't, uh, there were, I was the only European uh, exchange student and the rest were from uh, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Korea and did not speak English. So I had to learn uh, Chinese real quick. Uh, but that also meant that I did spend a lot of time not being understood uh, and a lot of time in uh, isolation, partly because of um, because of uh, the language, but also because the block it, blocking of you know Google, Instagram, and so on. Um, and so, just to be clear, you were what twenty? How old were you when this was? Going yeah. On? Yes. Yes. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and I spent only a half a year there in total, but it was a very lonely half a year. So it felt like a long time. Um, <laughs> but but uh, what happened was that, um, I mean, the, the Tianjin is also one of the most polluted cities. Uh, and uh, it was very rare to have a blue day. <clears throat> but once when we did have uh, blue skies, I, I asked around uh, my, my fellow classmates what, what, why this was. And they said, well, I guess they turned off the factories because there's some kind of official visit, maybe. And that was, uh, it was just said with a shrug, a shoulder shrug. And for me, it was just mind, mind blowing that A, they could turn off factories because of a governmental visit and it would change the entire weather. Uh, and B, that it wasn't a big deal, according to people. So this was a huge realization that, you know, this is how powerful countries, uh, states, uh, individuals can be. And that's what led me to think that, okay, Chinese as a language uh, and linguistics, it's, it, it is indeed one of the most fun ways that I like to spend my days. But these questions about power and um, organization, states, um, influences and just global affairs uh, was something so immense that I felt like I had to spend time on that. And that's what led me to political science and also the, I guess, the, the climax of politics is, or if you're interested in international questions, it kind of naturally leads you to, for example, the United Nations. So I thought that's what I want to learn about. So um, that's how I ended up where I am now. Five years later, I am indeed here in New York right now to work around the United Nations. So, um, yeah, um, that's one uh, travel and um uh, and where Outside do you want to take your career now? That sounds massively interesting. Like <laughs> a 20-year-old, 19-year-old girl moves to China in a language she doesn't, uh, in a place she's not familiar with. 
and then really discovers uh, herself and her career choices. Very, very inspiring. Um, talk to me about your career plans. Like, where do you want to shape your career? What next for you? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so going to Davos really opened my eyes in terms of, well, many things, but also the, I, I, I mean, naturally being a political scientist, I've, I've been very focused on states um, and this opened my uh, horizon for the private sector and those kinds of uh, power players as well and the ecosystem that exists beyond the states that I've been used to uh, analyzing. And so that was quite inspiring. And obviously the public-private partnership is something where I think that um, I I could play a role or I could um, find extremely uh, interesting and also see opportunities in how that could, um, how partnerships for, for climate resilience is uh, um, very potent uh, in that arena, um, but in general, I I want to continue on the path uh, that has to do with uh, risk and climate change. Um, so yeah, I'm. It's it's uh, it's uh, as as so many other things. It's a question that is, you know, you can you sort of create it as you go, um, and I'm looking forward to find out what what may be. Uh, happening in the future yeah that's the thing about career plans you know i mean there's nothing wrong in having a plan in fact it helps to have a hypothesis as long as we keep our eyes and ears open to new possibilities uh in a way we have to accelerate serendipity and give it a true chance which uh you know summits and platforms uh like uh the global shapers uh, provide yeah Um, Tell me, um, what advice do you have for people in their early 20s who want to build a career solving a tough, thorny problem they can't solve themselves? Yeah. Alone. Yeah. Uh, actually, th- now that you posed this question and, and I re- relate back to what uh, brought me to, to China, which was actually just the hunger for a challenge and the genuine... Um, openness I felt um, for devoting myself to something that this will this will be difficult and this will take time and this will change me and my life and I am open to whatever that takes me and I think that that appreciating the challenge and to sort of love it um, can make uh, can be the deal breaker for whether you um, will be sustained on the path that you choose, regardless of which one that you choose. That is powerful advice. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Carolina. We really appreciate the time that you've spent. And uh, now we look forward to hosting you on the Network Capital uh, Masterclass. Treasure your time and uh, keep doing what you're doing. More power to you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Utkash. I look forward.